Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and this is our program revealing the book of Revelation. We are in the midst of the study. In fact, we're coming to some of the final chapters. Uh, I hope you've seen the previous episodes, and without any further ado or introduction, I'm going to take you right to where we're at in our study. And we are at Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4 is where this study starts off. In the last study, we looked at the judgment of God. Whose judgment is God really directing his judgment toward? And it's Babylon, Babylon the Great, uh, Babylon the mother of harlots. And there's both a secular Babylon, which is the world, I believe is the world that's into sensuality and pleasures and things like that. And then there is religious Babylon, which I believe that centers in the Western nations uh, of those religions. And the judgment is directed at, and that's part of the reason why the Scripture tells us that we, that God's people, are to come up out of her because they, so that we don't receive the judgments that will be upon um, that, that entity. We're past the judgment now, and so we're now moving forward into uh, just past the day of the Lord, and as we concluded, the Lord is going to take the devil, and he's going to bind him uh, and put him in a bottomless pit for a thousand years. For the millennial kingdom, he'll be entrapped there. But the beast and the false prophet, this is the anti-Messiah and the false prophet that participated in the Great Tribulation, they are immediately at this point thrown into the lake of fire, which ultimately is what we refer to as hell. Uh, the rest of the judgment hasn't taken place. A whole lot of people in the world have died, those that were judged, and then we've had the resurrection. And the saints have now come alive. We have our new immortal bodies, and we're getting ready to be a part of the kingdom uh, that the Messiah wants on this world, which is going to last a thousand years, which, if you remember, the Scripture teaches with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. And so this is the last day. It's 1,000 years, but we call it the last day. And when the prophets are referring to the last day, a lot of times they're talking about either right at the start of the millennial kingdom or they're talking about things in the millennial kingdom. And this is going to give us some details about going into the millennial kingdom and coming out of the millennial kingdom. In other words, what, 
Why, why do we have that? And we here at the end of the ages, we're looking forward to that kingdom. So he's not going to give us a tremendous amount of information, but he's going to tell us some things about it. I've always joked with people about how I'm not worried about how we're going to end the millennial kingdom. I'm much more concerned about how to get into the millennial kingdom to begin with. So we, that's the objective for us at this time is to become part of the kingdom of God. And when he lives here in Jerusalem and rules the earth for a thousand years. So with that said, let us take up our study again in chapter 20 at verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Yeshua, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years. So there you have it. There's the resurrection uh, that, that happens right at the end of the ages. The saints are going to join the Messiah <clears throat> in this world as the Messiah comes to rule for a thousand years. And then he goes on to say, The rest of the dead did not come to life, until a thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So the first resurrection includes tribulation saints. Now, I want you to kind of let that sear into your mind for a little bit because we have a lot of eschatology teachers going around and they're adding something to that the scripture does not say. They are saying that the church is going to get resurrected before the Great Tribulation. And that somehow they're going to be up in the clouds or in heaven with uh, the Messiah while the Great Tribulation takes place, and then they're going to come back to the earth and rule over the earth afterwards. And then there's going to be a resurrection of the Tribulation saints. And essentially, they're saying the first resurrection for the believers is something that happens at the beginning of the tribulation, the resurrection and the rapture together. Here the scripture emphatically says the first resurrection includes tribulation saints. Therefore, there is not a resurrection that's before that. Now let me go ahead and qualify those that want to argue here a little bit. The resurrection that we're talking about of the saints is the great resurrection. Yes, Yeshua was resurrected from the grave. Yes, Lazarus was resurrected. Uh, yes, you could say that Elijah was resurrected. He was taken up to heaven. You know, and Enoch, he was taken up to heaven and so forth. We're not talking about the resurrection that is being spoken here. We're talking about something after those events. We're talking about a future event. And so it's not uh, going around trying to correct that the first resurrection was something back then, it's trying to set a marker and a reference, and it's trying to say the following. The tribulation saints that have passed during that time will be resurrected before the thousand-year reign begins. Now, that's where all the saints want to be. And so the teachers who are going around and saying, well, the rapture happens before that, there's a resurrection of the church before that, let me just tell you something very clear. This book has a warning at the end of it that if anybody adds to what this prophecy says, that the judgment of the plagues that we just got through doing will be added to them. 
Now, I would recommend that you not do that. You do not add to what this book has said. Just stay with what the book said. And the book has said the first resurrection is going to include the tribulation saints. And that means the saints that were before the tribulation got started. That would be like what people would call church saints. That's the saints that exist right now. And as we go into the great tribulation, we all become tribulation saints. We're alive during the tribulation. And if any die during the course of the tribulation, uh, and the, the scripture says that some will be martyred, they're going to be raised at the same time. So when Paul talks about, I tell you, a, a mystery, we shall not all sleep in First Thessalonians 4. Don't grieve for those who have gone to sleep beforehand. They will be raised first, and we who are alive will be caught up together with them. He is describing this event being discussed here. Now, the reason I'm a little bit emphatic on this, I've been uh, a teacher here for many years. And the most controversial subject on eschatology that I have encountered in the course of my lifetime is this subject about when is the rapture. And the people who believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, the rapture of the church, quite honestly, fundamentally, their entire theology is flawed. I mean, that's not just a difference of opinion. I mean, the base theology of what they believe about God is completely flawed. They have taken the church and separated it from Israel. God's program is with Israel, the God of this book, the God of the, of the world. His plan is to raise up Israel to bring forth the Messiah and to establish his kingdom. He has not taken a little time out from Israel, as dispensationalists think, and, oh, I'll just raise up the church, and that's what will usher in the kingdom, and then we'll deal with Israel as an afterthought. Because now you're impugning the very character of God. The very character of God says, I keep covenant. And while the church likes to talk about the old covenant and the new covenant, even that is a misrepresentation of what the Lord has shown us. The truth of the matter is there are seven covenants that God has made with mankind. Six of them are present. There's one more yet to go. And the old covenant that they super simplify and say is the old covenant, we're talking about the covenant made with God with Adam, talking about the one made with Noah, with Abraham, with the children of Israel, and with King David. Those are five separate specific covenants. They all add together. But then when we come to the new covenant, the covenant that Yeshua ushered in, they call it the new covenant. They lump all the previous ones into the old covenant and diminish them, asserting the new covenant has replaced them. That, And as a result of doing that, then they think too highly of themselves. They think they get a special program from God, especially when it comes to the end of the age, that they will not suffer any. They will be raptured out before the great judgment and so forth comes. Brethren, just look at the history of the last 1,700 years. How many believers have been slain throughout the, the centuries? It's a multitude. 
many times over. So where's the so-called protection of the church they're advocating where they can't be harmed? You know, the only people that are advocating that are Americans. Because we Americans, in the short time that we've been in world history, all of our wars have been somewhere else. That it hasn't been in our land, with the exception of the Civil War. Our, we went to Europe and fought wars. We went to Asia and fought wars. They don't come to us, so we think we're special. And so as American Christian Church, we were the ones who pushed this thing and started this whole business. The pre-tribulation rapture really did not take hold until James Darby of the Brethren Church and C.I. Schofield and some others back there, uh, you know, and the Dallas Theological Seminary got a hold of the evangelicals and the Baptists over the deal. And, and, and that's where that whole thing came from that is in this generation. This is not an ancient teaching. It is a late-day teaching, and it is misleading the brethren. In the case of those who hold to that idea that they get resurrected before the great trib, they take the attitude, I don't want to learn anything about what this book is teaching. In fact, I'm afraid of this book. I don't want to know anything about this book. I have actually seen churches refuse to teach this book. And they don't want to know about it. It makes them afraid. And the reason is because they want this escalator ride, you know, that they think is coming from God. And they don't want to hear anything else. It's like what the scripture says, that in the last days there would be those who would look for teachers who would tickle their ears. Say something nice to me. Say something I want to hear. Just tell me the good stuff. I don't want to hear about judgment. And, and it, you've heard the expression, oh, I don't want to hear about doom and gloom. That's their title that they give to any of the prophecies that really talk about the end of the ages. They've set themselves up for a huge failure. They've set themselves up for incredible disappointment. So... For those who hold to the idea of the rapture, and there's a resurrection at the start of the great trib, this verse right here says that is not correct. The first resurrection is at the end of the great tribulation, and it includes the saints. So this whole premise of the church is going to get raptured first is all based on unbelievable error as to who they are and what God's program is, even for them at this moment. Let me just add one last thing. We're getting ready to read here at the end of the book about New Jerusalem. It's going to be wonderful. And New Jerusalem is described to us. There are 12 gates to Jerusalem. They're named after the 12 tribes of Israel. If you're not numbered with one of the tribes of Israel, which gate do you think you're going to use to get in there? If you're not numbered with that tribe, with that kingdom, then how do you get into that city? How do you get into that place? There is no Gentile gate. There's no church gate. There's no Presbyterian or Catholic gate or Baptist gate or Methodist gate, or American Christian gate. And if that's what you're tooting as your credential, you know, that you're going to be part of the kingdom, I have bad news for you. You're not even going to get to see that city, and you're going to be in shock when you find out there's no gate open to you. 
Now that's severe. But you know this book is severe. The Lord is coming to a time when he's not going to put up with it anymore. He's going to judge Babylon. So he's warning his people, get out of that. Get out of that nonsense. Get over here with me. Turn back to Moses. Turn back to what the prophets have said. Turn back to what John the prophet has said. This is the program. This is really what's going to be happening. And we're told to pay attention to this and that if we heed this, good things will happen. If we don't heed this, bad things are going to happen. All right. So here's the first resurrection. It comes at the conclusion of the Great Tribulation. And it says the rest of the dead, those that died that don't belong to the Lord, that don't get resurrected, they're going to remain dead for a thousand years. They will then get resurrected, as we'll find out, at the end of the thousand years for judgment. And that's called the resurrection of the dead, as you'll find out here very shortly. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who takes part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of the Messiah and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever. I, this is, I know this is going to come as a shock to you. But we have this idea that we're running around in the ages, and that, by the way, when the Messiah comes back here, that's it. The whole program of God is over with. We're done. And praise God, we made it. And uh, everything after that is just happiness, and everything is cool. That's not what the prophecy says. The prophecy says that when he comes back, we who belong to the Lord... We will receive our immortal bodies. We'll reign with the Messiah for a thousand years. But apparently, there's going to be some other people that are going to come along in the course of the thousand years that they don't have the promise that we have of the no second death. Now, who in the world could that be? Could it be some of the people that were on the world that went through the day of the Lord? No, they're all dead. Those that don't belong to the Lord, on the day of the Lord, they're dead. They wait that thousand years out and to be judged later. So who could the other people be? Well, I have a theory. Now, the scripture doesn't say it. It's pure speculation on my part, but this is the best answer I have for this. I'm aware that there are a lot of people who have lived in this world who never came to the age of accountability. They had no opportunity whatsoever to come to terms with God. The circumstances of this world prohibited them from doing so. Children. Children who died in wars and disease and never rose to the point where they could be confronted with the message of the Lord. Aborted children who never even had a chance to get out of the womb. Um... There could be others. The Lord knows who these people are. And I know that God is merciful. I know God does not judge 
unfairly. He is just in his judgments. And it may be that God will bring them forth into the kingdom and allow them to live out their lives. There's also going to be evidence that this is where the scripture says there's no end to his increase of the kingdom. There's probably going to be children born in the kingdom. Isaiah chapter 60 certainly refers to small children and the least of them coming forth. And so I believe there will be children born in the kingdom, but they don't have the promise that you and I are going to have, having gone through the first resurrection, the promise of no second death, because we have passed into immortal status with the Lord. Our relationship with the Lord is sealed for eternity. Theirs may not be sealed for eternity. What they may have to do is learn. And it may be when it talks about we're ruling and reigning with the Messiah, maybe these are the ones that we're guiding and leading and trying to teach. Well, in any case, we come to the end of the thousand years, and the Lord allows Hasatan, Satan, to come out from under the bondage that he's in, and he gets another opportunity to deceive that world the world that was created during the millennial age. And supposedly he's able to deceive some, and there's going to be a final battle then for that, where God comes and then he completely wipes them out. And they are those that get judged. They're judged with all the others in the previous ages. You and I, we're going to see this. We will hold to the Lord, and and we'll see the, the Lord victorious even in his kingdom. Now, If you're saying to me, well, Monty, that's just way too much, you know, surely things are coming to a conclusion. I want to remind you of something. God has already judged this world before, once before. You remember the flood? Where he wiped the world out and only brought a few people forward into it. And so what's stopping him from bringing us, the saints from these ages, forward into his kingdom and there being another world that gets another opportunity and there's another judgment upon them nothing the lord's already done this before this is not precedent setting for him to do now i know that's completely contrary to what people have thought about coming to the end of the ages that when once we get in the kingdom that's it there's nothing else going on sure was fun great ride and so no he says there's more Now, we're not there yet. We're not in those days yet. But I can assure you that once we are in those days, we're going to understand what's going on. We're going to be a part of what's going on. And I have the good news for you is wonderful things will be happening for us, and we will see the Lord victorious uh, in the course of that. So this business of, you know, the first resurrection is before the tribulation, and, oh, by the way, that's it, we go to heaven... Sheer nonsense. This book says differently. This book tells there's still other things to happen. I would remind you, as I mentioned to you about the covenants, there was one last covenant that's been prophesied. It's called the covenant of peace. That's the covenant that comes in the last day. That's the covenant that God makes with us when we're in the kingdom with him. So there's still yet another covenant, and the new covenant isn't the final covenant of God. The the covenant of peace is still yet to come. So we're part of a process that the Lord is doing here uh, to be part of his program. All right. Now, you heard mention about Gog and Magog being judged. 
Gog and Magog is a generalized term. It's abstract in its nature. It means Gog, the enemies of Gog, of God, and those with Gog. Magog is those with Gog. So it's not just a single entity. It's a multitude of entities being referred to as Gog and Magog. These are all the enemies of God. This is kind of God's umbrella uh, that goes over the top of all of his enemies. All of his enemies are referred to as Gog and Magog. And he says, at the end, there will be this judgment of Gog and Magog. His, all of his enemies are going to be judged at the end. If you go back to Ezekiel 38 and 39... You hear the same term, Gog and Magog, with regard to a regional war with Israel that is just before the Great Tribulation. That again, those are enemies of the God of Israel, and he uses that term to refer to a collection, a whole variety of people. I personally believe that Gog and Magog that's being referred to in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is basically the Muslim world and all of the different variations of the Muslims. Uh, he could have said uh, the Muslims and all the variations of Muslims, and it would have meant the same thing as Gog and Magog. And because those are the enemies that are in, in the Middle East, those are the enemies coming against Israel for the invasion to fulfill the prophecy of Ezekiel 38 and 39. So now we're talking about the umbrella of all of the enemies at the end of the thousand years and what will take place. All right. Again, let me take you back to the scripture here. It says, um, did you notice verse 9? And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. There is no broad plain of the earth. When the Messiah comes back and we have the day of the Lord, there's going to be some new terraforming of this planet. The judgment upon the earth that will come against all the enemies of God is going to be restructuring the earth. Mountains will be made low, valleys will be raised up, the scripture says, all right, and he's going to clean the world up. And we're going to have a brand new world, essentially, to live in at the millennial kingdom. Now, how many of the ruins are going to be left from the previous age? I don't know. Some of it may be buried, but we might see the evidence of, of the past, just as we walk around today and we see ancient history from archaeology. Uh, of times past, there may be archaeological evidence in the in the future that will tell of these times. People like you and me will probably be going around and saying, "Oh, you see this structure here? Well, this was an on ramp that we used to have a a roadway system, and this is a large structure. This is an on ramp for it. And I'm sure that the people that are born there in the kingdom are going, "Why in the world did they have that?" So, well, back in those days, we couldn't fly and we couldn't move around. We couldn't run and not be weary. We had to get in these automobiles. We made these things that scoot around on it. That's how we moved around. I'm hypothetically making a conversation, all right, into the future. I'm certain there will be a whole bunch of interesting conversations in the future after the Lord gets through judging the earth. All right. Uh, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are today and they will be tormented day and night forever that's the final judgment of the devil is at the end of the millennial kingdom the beast and the false prophet precede him then the devil is thrown in with them into the lake of fire which we call hell 
verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, and for those whose presence earth and earth and heaven fled away. Oh, with the presence of earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead, which was in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead, which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the ultimate, we call the great white throne judgment. This comes at the conclusion of the messianic kingdom it comes at the conclusion of the final battle of gog and magog and this is the ultimate judgment now i need to take you back to verse 11 i need to show you something in particular i saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whom presence earth and heaven fled away Now, in a little bit, we're going to see even more language about this. So let me, if I can give it in a nutshell, let me set you up and tell you what we're getting ready to read. It turns out that when this great white throne judgment comes, something else dramatically changes. How about the earth and the universe go away? The the earth yields all of the people that are going to be judged, and the heavens and the earth are no more. And there is no place for them to ever be. Now, you and I, we're with the Lord. We're in the presence of God. By the way, wherever you're in the presence of God, it doesn't make any difference. What's there, you're there. And what he's going to tell us is that he's going to create something brand new where we're going to be with the Lord for eternity. And the present universe, as best as I can describe to you, will not exist Now, one of the great studies that I love about science is learning all about the universe and how it was created and the Big Bang Theory and where the throne of God could possibly be. We know that God's throne is beyond the stars. He says so. So we know that there is a presence of him, and then we know we have the universe and we're operating in. And, And apparently this is a staging area. For what's been going on with God, this this thing going on with us and the devil and him and so forth. Um, but when he's done with this and all of the issues have been decided, who belongs with him for eternity and who doesn't belong with him for eternity, apparently he comes in and he just kind of races the chalkboard and he's going to make a whole new universe for you and I to be a part of. By the way, since he's the creator God and he's in control of all the different dimensions of the creation, I'm certain that if he was able to create the universe, he can certainly take one out and he can certainly build a new one. Now, normally we don't think that that's the plan, but that's what's being spoken. That's another one of those things at the end of this book where incredible things are being said to us, trying to give us a hint of what is really in our future. So let us continue on now into uh, chapter 21. Are you ready for this? 
And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, here it is. The old has gone, and something new has been created. And he refers to the new Jerusalem and refers to it as being his bride. I need to... Uh, qualify that for you how would why would that be called that most husbands know this Um, this is a natural thing that takes place Um, the husband may be the head of the um, of the family and may be the head of his wife but the house belongs to the bride and any husband who learns this quickly that the house is her nest and it belongs to her and you cooperate with her on the house. It's not your house. It's her house. You live there with her, and you're in charge, okay? But it's her house. The quicker you get that, the more you'll understand what the role of a bride is. Well, guess what the Lord says here? His bride is synonymous with his bride is this new place that she's going to dwell in, this new Jerusalem that you will dwell Verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. The equation, the bride is synonymous with the house. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, And there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Verse 6 also says, And he said to me, It is done. And now your Bibles may say, I'm Alpha and Omega. Let me give you the Hebrew. I'm the Aleph and the Tav. We talked about that early in chapter 1. I'm the Aleph and Tav, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. One of the things that Yeshua came doing, he specifically said that accepting him and believing in his Father who sent him, that we would get to drink of rivers of living waters. And what he's really referring to is you'll get to live in the kingdom you'll get to live in this ultimate place water is an evidence of two things biblically to us it is evidence of the work of the spirit of god and it's also evidence of eternal life in john's gospel i always like to point this out in in john chapter 20 he states what is the purpose of his book he says the following I have written these things that you might believe that Yeshua of Nazareth is uh, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that you might receive the gift of eternal life. So there's two objectives. The first one is so that you'll believe in the Messiah. The second one is to be the recipient of eternal life. Now, there's a very intriguing mystery of the book. Because the way the Holy Spirit guided John to write the book, was every time John goes to present you a proof that he really is the Messiah, John diligently records where the water 
is at in that incident. When Yeshua first appeared, where were they at? They were at the Jordan River, and they were baptizing. That's when the Messiah was first introduced. And they heard the first testimony. We heard the priest, uh, John the Baptist, proclaiming him to be the Lamb of God according to the temple protocol. It takes a priest to declare an acceptable sacrifice. We have John the, uh, John the Baptist, who's a Levite priest, proclaiming he is the Messiah, the, the, the Lamb of God. And then we're looking for confirmation. So what happens at the confirmation? Well, the next one uh, is he goes off to Cana and he turns water into wine. And uh, John tells us that's the first sign he did in Cana. And then you hear about incidents at the Pool of Bethesda, at the Pool of Siloam, up at the Sea of Galilee, again at the Jordan River, at the well, you know, Jacob's well up near Bethel. You know, there's water present in every one of these things. The water libation ceremony was done at the Feast of Tabernacles. Pilate washing his hands with water, offering him the drink at the final part. You know, the water is present, and, and, and it's one of the signs, and that's spiritual language. You know, Paul talks about we speak in spiritual words and spiritual thoughts. This is one of the spiritual, this is an evidence of the spiritual language that we find in the book. And so he says here, he says, you're going to drink from it and you're going to have access to these living waters, which has always been the sign in Scripture of eternal life and what is happening there with regard to it. Um, all right, he, he, let me conclude. Oh, I'm already down in chapter 21. You're going to have to bear with me, folks. I've got so many thoughts going through my head. This book is complex, and I love it. And so, all right, so we've, <laughs> all right, so we've talked about New Jerusalem, and now we're down to uh, right for these words are faithful and true. And then he says the water of life is without cost. Now, the next topic that I'm getting ready to show you here, you've already kind of heard about this back in chapter 19. Verse 9, 21 verse 9, it says, And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit uh, of the great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of the heavens, Having glory of God, her brilliance is like costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It has a great high wall with twelve gates and gates and gates twelve and twelve angels, and the gates have twelve angels. And the names were written on them, which are the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There are three gates on the east, three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city has twelve foundation stones, and on them are the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod and measured the city and its gates and its walls. And all the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. He measured the city with the rod fifteen hundred miles, its length and width and height and, and equal are equal. 1,500 miles is just one of the angles of this new place that we're going to be a part of. Um, 
It's not sitting on the earth. It comes down out of heaven. I'm, I, all I can repeat to you is what the description says. It, it's utterly fantastic. Um, he goes on. Let me, let me uh, elaborate here further. Verse 17. He measured the wall. 72 yards. Actually, it actually says in the language 144 cubits. According to the human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Now, that's an interesting statement. Let me see if I can recapture this for you. There are three specific markers about this new Jerusalem. There's 12 gates named after the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. There's 12,000 nation stones. They're named after the 12 apostles that brought about the new covenant to the world. And then it says the wall, the measure of the wall, is 144 cubits. And I'm going to use what it actually says in the, in the ancient language. Now, when has the number 144 ever indicated before? Where have we ever heard that before? Well, that's the most significant digits of back in Revelation chapter 7 of the 144,000. The ministry of the 144,000 in the Great Tribulation will be equivalent to the ministry of the 12 tribes of Israel in the history of Israel and is equivalent to the 12 apostles who ushered in the new covenant. And God is going to memorialize all three of those elements in the new Jerusalem. He's bringing some reminders forward of those that contributed to this great city, that contributed to this kingdom. And I want to remind you, that we who potentially are going to be going through the Great Tribulation, that the 144,000 that will be present, they will be a very, very significant ministry and a very significant part of what is happening in the Great Tribulation, and they are going to be memorialized for it. And, of course, it's a beautiful city. It uses uh, precious stones to be a picture of it. And um, he goes on to let me go ahead and give you this uh, description. Verse 19, the foundation stones of the city were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third caldoni, the fourth emerald, fifth sardonyx, sixth sardius, and seventh uh, crystallite, the eighth beryl, ninth topaz, the tenth um, Christophrase, and the 11th Hyacinth, and the 12th Amethyst. Now, those aren't necessarily um, stones that are the most valuable stones, gemstones of the world, but these are very beautiful stones. They're part of God's creation, and these stones are the similar stones that were used in the, in the priest's breastplate uh, for it as well, and they are going to be a part of the future of the description of the kingdom. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gate was a single pearl, and the street of the city was gold like transparent glass. Before we go any further, let's talk about, you know, a pearl is not like one of those other minerals. A pearl is actually formed in the shell uh, by an unclean creature. And in fact, not too long ago, I actually had this question posed to me. Uh, why would God use a pearl that's something that came from an unclean animal 
as a precious thing. Why would he use a pearl here for the gates? A lot of this has to do with and goes back into Middle Eastern uh, culture and the culture that's around Israel. Pearls were very easy to carry many of them, and they had different values associated with them. They were like a rich man's currency. They didn't go around with gold. Gold's heavy. If you carry a lot of gold around with you, it's a burden, or silver, for that matter. You would have gold, you would have silver, but you'd keep it at a particular place. But if you were traveling and you were moving around and you wanted to take something of value, well, you took some pearls. That's the reason why that Yeshua made reference to that as you're traveling and going around, don't cast your pearls before swine. If you're traveling and you come up to somebody who's not worthy of your time and so forth, don't give any of your pearls to them. Because pearls was a much more common thing associated with travelers. It was more associated with people who would be commuting to a a city. You'd take a bag of pearls. So why would he make a gate out of pearl? Because pearls were associated with going in and out. Pearls were associated as the great value of when you travel. So the gates where you go in and out are made of a single pearl. uh, And that has been made into a gate. That's the best explanation I can give to you. I know that, that in the Middle East, pearls are the preferred, if you will, natural currency that they can carry with them as opposed to lugging a bunch of gold bars around with them uh, for it. All right. So let's bring this chapter to a conclusion. Um, And he says, verse 22, And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. That should tell you this is brand new. The Lord normally has a temple, but he's going to make this the temple of God, the dwelling place of God, and we're going to dwell with him in this place. The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and the, and the lamp is the lamb. We don't need a universe anymore. We don't need a sun, moon, and stars anymore. That's not part of our existence. That's the reason why I'm saying it appears that the Lord is saying that once this great judgment is done at the end of the thousand years, the universe goes away. There is no place for those who have been the enemies of God to even exist anymore. There's no universe for them to be in. There's no planet for them to ever be on again. Everywhere that they've despoiled is gotten rid of. Only new things and the things that are controlled by God, and that's where we will dwell with him. Um, he goes on to say, and the nations, verse 24, the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose name are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those that live for eternity with God. They're the only ones that go in and out. They're the only ones that are a part of that. So whatever else is outside of that, whatever it is, there is no place for any enemy of God to ever be again. 
So whatever the conflict was between Hasatan and the heavens and the Lord, it has been resolved once and for all. And that is the part that we're told is the completion. It's the completion is not just the Messiah returning. The Messiah returns to win a battle, to take back the earth away from the Hasatan. Then he establishes a kingdom. There's still going to be another battle. But once that one is done, judgment, ultimate judgment comes upon all of his enemies. Hasatan, the beast, the false prophet, they go to hell. Uh, all the enemies of him go to hell. Uh, and we live with the Lord for eternity in a specially prepared place just for us to dwell with him. All right. That brings us to the conclusion of chapter 21. In our next study, we're going to look at chapter 22, which is the final chapter. And we are going to draw some incredible conclusions from our study of the book. What you'll find is chapter 22 is going to kind of review a couple of the earlier things we did so we can kind of encapsulate the thing and bring it to a conclusion. We'll look forward to that next episode in the next program. Shalom, everyone.